0: I don't know that it's still there, but years ago, if you traveled uh, up to 19, like you were going to go to Buffalo around Christmas time, uh, just as soon as you crossed over from Pennsylvania into New York, New York, you went through a very tiny town named Limestone, New York. Uh, a buddy of mine lived there. He called it the Crossroads of the World. It's just a little crossroads in the middle of nowhere. And uh, along the side of the road there, there's a row of houses set back from the road. And one of the gentlemen who lived in, in that house, I assume it was a guy, he put up a sign every Christmas, and it was big. I mean, it was at least on, on a four-by-eight piece of uh, of plywood, but I think it was multiple pieces of plywood, just huge letters. You can see them from the wall, or from the road, rather, and they made a sort of wall there. They were in, in red. Christmas season, two words. Now, what do you think he had? Maybe he had silent night. Maybe he had good news. Maybe he had holy night, white Christmas, welcome Christmas. What two words do you think he had on that sign? Yeah, Bah Humbug, that's what he had on that sign. Bah Humbug, and I loved that sign. My wife said, and when we were going by it a few times, she said, that guy is probably a misanthrope, and I didn't even know what that word meant. I said, what's a misanthrope? She said, you are. And and a misanthrope is someone who hates his fellow man. (laughs) He hates humankind, and I'm not that at all, but I have been accused of being misanthropic. Several years ago, my wife, uh, and on Christmas morning, handed me a box. And, you know, we do our Christmas thing under the tree. And uh, she handed this box to me, and I should have been suspicious right away. Because the kids were all like, oh, there's the box. That's the box, you know. And, and I have their full attention. And I opened it up, and there was a little stuffed toy in it. It wasn't a teddy bear. You know what this is, right? It's the Grinch, right? You're a mean one, Mr. Grinch. And I pulled it out, and I, I kind of had this puzzled look. He'll stop singing in a moment. I kind of had this puzzled look on my face. And I'm like, uh, w- what, what, what is this for? And they, all three of them, my wife and my son and my daughter said, Dad, that's you. You are the Grinch. But we love you just the same. And I thought, well, there it is. Um, I'm misanthropic and I'm a Grinch. And then, of course, the mug came along. And you saw the mug this morning. I showed it to you. And, and again, what it says is this, this mug belongs to a crabbit an ill-tempered, grumpy, curt, disagreeable, and in a bad mood person, especially in the morning, um, air, aura of irritability. I Can you imagine my daughter, someone as darling as my daughter, giving something like that to someone as nice as me? I just don't understand why she would do that. This week, as I was preparing this message, I was poking around on the internet, and, and I saw a picture that reminded me of this. This is a park bench. It's in London. I don't know if you can read what it says there. <laughs> I guess you can. Uh, I'll read it to you. It says, "In memory of Roger Bucklesby, who hated this park and everyone in it." And uh, when my wife saw that, she—I sent it to our family. Esther texted me and said, "I love that email. That was so funny. That picture." I, I get her. Uh, 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 my wife gets up from her computer, walks to, into the room where I'm working, and says, "I am starting a fund to get you a park bench." <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That's pretty funny. Well, what about what about you? What about you? Are you a crabbit at times? Are you known to be the Grinch in your family? Any Roger Bucklesbees present with us today? Anyone feeling a little misanthropic? Today, as we celebrate the Lord's Supper, what we're doing is we're continuing this journey toward emotional and spiritual health. We've been, this is the 14th sermon in a series, looking at Pete Scazzaro's book, Emotionally Healthy Spirituality, the The base thoughts come from that text. but. Today our example comes from the church in Corinth. And as we read this passage, I'm kind of going to go verse by verse for about five verses here and just kind of help you, maybe half a dozen verses, just kind of help you get a feel for what's going on. The Apostle Paul is writing to people he knows and loves in a city in Greece called Corinth. And he's talking to them about their behavior as a church. And listen to what he says, starting in verse 17. He says, In the following directives... I have no praise for you. For your meetings do more harm than good. I want you to think about that for a minute. Just think for a moment that, that, that this guy says that to you. Can you think of a harsher indictment against a group of people than to say, it would be better off if you would just disband? Because the gatherings you're having every Sunday morning, they're causing more harm than good. So just, it'd be better off if you would just disband. And it would hurt even more coming from this guy named Paul. He's the guy writing this. He's the guy who went to Greece and introduced many of these people to Jesus personally. He told them about Jesus. He introduced them to the faith. He planted that church. He taught them how to pray. The guy that taught them how to pray is now telling them they'd be better off if they didn't meet together. He taught them how to learn what God had in store for them. He taught them how to do communion and how to remember the Lord's death in communion. Imagine how you would feel if the man or woman who introduced you to Jesus and invested a large chunk of time discipling you and helping you to get to know Jesus. Imagine if he came to you personally and said, hey, I hear a few things about you, and I think you just need to stay away from the church because you're causing more trouble than you're bringing good. It is a scathing indictment that he's bringing to them. And what it reminds us of is it is very difficult at times for any group of people to function well over the long term and to show love to one another. Let's read on and hear a little bit more of what he has to say. Again, we're in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. We're going to be going verse by verse, so if you haven't opened a the Bible there, please do so. Look at verse 18. He says, in the first place, I hear that when you come together as a church, there are divisions among you, and to some extent, I believe it. Okay, divisions in the church, that's generally not a good thing. It's not that we all have to talk the same. It's not that we all have to dress the same. You don't even need to feel the same about every issue or agree on every single issue. But when differences lead to this kind of thing, like, well, I don't know, did you know about him? You know what he does? You know what he he believes? Hey, did you know what he did? I'm so glad I'm not like him. I, I don't even care what he thinks. I don't care what she thinks. I really don't give a rip at all. She, that, they can just, no. When divisions lead to that sort of thing, they're not only ugly, they're very unhealthy. Because we serve a God who is, by definition, according to John, love. And if we are to be following him and reflecting his image, then we must be people Of love, and when we have divisions that put one another down, that love isn't happening, and we're not healthy as a group, and we're not healthy as individuals either. He mentions those divisions, and then in the very next verse, he says something that's kind of strange. I mean, look at verse nineteen. He says, "No doubt there have to be differences among you to show which of you have God's approval." But what does he mean by that? Yeah, no, is he being serious? I understand there's divisions among you, and no doubt there have to be differences among you to see who has God's approval. There are commentators who say, yeah, that's just a serious statement, that's how he means it. it. sounds weird to me. It just sounds weird to me. There are other commentators, a lot of them, who say he's being sarcastic. Though what he's saying is, I hear there's divisions among you. Ha, no doubt there have to be to show which ones of you are the best and which ones aren't according to God. God likes me better than you, you know. My kids, when they were little, they would come and say, which one of us do you love more? And I would say, I don't like either of you. (laughs) Because I'm a crabbit. (laughs) Yeah. And and so maybe that's what's going on there. Maybe he's being sarcastic. And Paul is often sarcastic. Look it up. He was very sarcastic. Or maybe he's speaking ironically. Maybe he's saying, there's divisions among you. Isn't it ironic? There would naturally be differences here to see who has God's approval, but wow, do any of you? Wow. No one really knows, some commentators think they know, but the bottom line is none of us know what he's saying there exactly, but everyone agrees on this, and this is what you need to get, that the church in Corinth is in crisis because they aren't able to love one another. They're not loving each other. In their meetings, they'd be better off if they disbanded as a church. Wow. Now Paul talks about communion. And to me, this is where it gets really interesting. Look at verse 20. He says, when we come together, when you come together, it's not the Lord's Supper you eat. That's a weird thing to say. I think this is kind of where the bee gets into Paul's bonnet, so to speak. I think this is kind of what makes him angry. Their behavior at communion. And now, as we discuss communion, you have to understand the early church didn't take communion like we do. They didn't have padded pews and all sit in a row together with a guy standing up front who called four ushers up or communion stewards or elders and had them distribute the bread and then come back and then distribute the cup. That wasn't it. The communion service itself, the Lord's Supper, was modeled after a meal called Passover. And so when they had communion, they sat down and had a meal together, all of them together celebrating it. And there were a number of elements in it. But the two that Jesus established that he ordained were the bread and the cup. So here they are at this communion event. And Paul says, that's not what you're doing. You call it communion, but it's not. And then he explains in verse 21 the problem. Here's why. For as you eat, each of you goes ahead without waiting for anyone else. One remains hungry, that's one extreme, and another gets drunk, that's another extreme. And that's just wrong. We would all agree. Going ahead before the other people, pushing your way to the front of the line, if that's what was happening, that's wrong. Getting drunk, that's a no-no in any thinking person's book. Not caring for people you're supposed to be family with, wow, that's just ugly. Now there's a school of thought, a lot of people see it this way, that because the church in Corinth was such a diverse group, this was bound to happen. Because you know the early church was something that cut across all cultural layers. That there were very wealthy people who found Jesus and turned from their sin and trusted him as their savior. And they were part of the church. And then you can go the whole way down the spectrum to a whole different group. And I'm going down just socially speaking, that's the way our culture would see it, down to the people who would be slaves and servants, men and women who had sold themselves into slavery or some taken by choice, by by force. And the thinking is that if you're incredibly wealthy, you don't have to work. And it's Sunday, the first day of the week, is when they gather together. And that's a working day. Everybody's working. But the wealthy people don't have to. The poorer people must. The working man has to. And so by the time he shows up at the end of the day, the meal's over. The whole service is over. And those guys are drunk. And I haven't even entered into the presence of God. And Paul says, that is just wrong. Here's something that is very intriguing to me. The Apostle Paul isn't concerned with how they're treating the bread and the cup. I I would be a little torqued that they're getting drunk on the communion wine. That wine is to represent the blood of Jesus. I can't believe you're using it that way. That would be my take. Because I would regard the bread and the wine consecrated and holy for this express purpose. But Paul isn't upset about how they're treating the bread and wine. Paul is upset about how they're treating one another. And here's the deal. (laughs) One another... Is consecrated and holy, and how we treat one another is intensely important to God. Intensely important. Look what he says in verse 22. He says, Don't you have homes to eat and drink in? In other words, if you're just here simply for the food, you'd be better off to stay home because it's not about the food, it's about the Savior and the fellowship. And then he gets even more pointed. In the middle of verse 22, he says, or do you despise the church of God? Now, you know, when we say church, we often make the mistake of thinking it's this building. This is the church. But you know that chorus that the Methodists sing that says, I am the church, you are the church, we are the church together. That's it. I hate it when you laugh when I sing. (laughs) I don't mind at all. Yeah, but now you know why I'm not on the worship team, don't you? Yeah. Did you hear the words? I'm the church. You're the church. We are the church. And so when Paul says this, he's saying, do you despise your brothers and sisters? Do you despise the other people? Do you hate them? Or, he goes on in verse 22, are you just trying to humiliate them? Are you trying to make yourself look better and are you downgrading them? And he winds it up by saying, what shall I say to you? Shall I praise you for this? Certainly not. You see, Paul is deeply distressed that they are not treating one another with love. So today, I want to suggest to you that as we come to communion, it would, here you go, you ready for King James' word? It would behoove us. It would be appropriate to us that we would think a little bit about how we treat people around us. Those inside the body of Christ and those beyond. Because here's the point. If you're not behaving in love toward your fellow human being, You're not healthy spiritually, and you're not healthy emotionally. So we don't want any misanthropes. We don't want any haters. (laughs) We want lovers. And in order to do that, you need to be able to see your own personhood. Now, when I talk to you about seeing your own personhood, I'm not talking about self-esteem. You know, from time to time, you'll hear people saying something like this. They'll say, in order to love others, you first need to love yourself. That's not where I'm going here. What I'm saying to you is something even more basic than that. In order to love others, you must see your own personhood and you must see yourself as having been created by God. And if you grew up in Clearfield County, in fact, if you grew up in America, you've at least heard about that idea that you are created by God. He made you. He created you. He designed you. He formed you in your mother's womb. You know that stuff because you grew up in at least somewhat of a Christian culture, and many of you grew up going to church all your life. So you get that. The people in Corinth probably didn't get that. They grew up as pagans. They had a whole lot of deities. Uh, Who created us? I'm not sure. Probably Zeus. I don't know who did. You know Who do you think? I don't know. Maybe Poseidon. I don't know. Where would you get your sense of value if you didn't know you were created by a loving God who made heaven and earth? Where would you get your identity if you didn't know that you were made in the image of a holy one who is pure and righteous in all he does? And where would you get the idea that there was a right and wrong regarding the way you treat other people who were created in his image if you didn't know that they were created in his image and that you were? I was reading some history this past week, and I came upon the question of where Thomas Jefferson got the idea that all men were created equal. So I immediately texted our history Trivia, trivial guy, that's uh, Tim Smay, and I think, I'm not sure, but I think he got on his iPhone and he was reading stuff when he was giving me answers. I know I was reading stuff when I was asking him questions. We were probably on the same page. <laughs> and where did Thomas Jefferson get the idea that all men were created equal? Well, a history person would know it came from Thomas Paine. Thomas Paine, just a few months before, had written a little pamphlet. We would call it a booklet, or a book rather, maybe 40 to 60 pages, the one I have. And it was called Common Sense. And in there, he posited the idea that we are all created equal, that we're all alike. And no one should be the king just by default, and no one should be the peon just because. That really, we're created equal. It came from Paine. It came from people like Franklin. But where did they get it? Where did they get the idea that we're created equal? I would say it comes from the reality that deep within their minds, they knew that there was a creator who was righteous and who was holy and who was just. And what needed to follow was equality. I say that because originally Jefferson used some different words than than we hold these truths to be self-evident. In his first draft of the Declaration of Independence, he said, we hold these truths to be sacred and undeniable because he saw them as coming from God. Now, I want you to think of that phrase. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal. Are they self-evident? I don't like to disagree with the founding fathers, but I don't think they're self-evident. It is self-evident to those of us who grew up with a Judeo-Christian heritage. But if you grew up in Corinth, that was not on your mind at all. You grew up in a world where there was no equality, and that's the way it should be. Even the pagan gods in the Greeks, none of them were equal, and they were always jockeying for, for position and fighting. And so you would have had no idea that it's wrong for you who are wealthy and don't have to work on Sunday to not wait for those who are poor. This is the way it is. This is the way it always has been. This is the way it always will be. This is just. This is fair. And so unless you have the idea in your personhood that you're created by God, you wouldn't have the mindset that we all have rights. And we do have certain rights. That's the part we like. We also have certain responsibilities. And that's the part the people of Corinth were missing. That they were responsible to, to move for the good of one another. And they were responsible before, before God to live in a way that was fair and just toward one another. If you don't see your personhood as coming from a creator, you won't get that. But beyond this, to understand your personhood, you have to see yourself as even having been transformed by God. Now, these people in Corinth, they had become Christians. And yet it never occurred to them that they should treat their brothers and sisters, even the slaves among them, as equal. And and I'm guessing now that if you said to them that they should do that, if you said, hey, you who are wealthy, don't you think that you should wait for these people who are poor? They go like, are you out of your mind? That doesn't make any sense to me. Well, can you do that? I think you can do that. And they would say, I, I, I can't do that. There is no way that that can happen. I can't even imagine that. I can't even dream that I, a member of the aristocracy, would be sitting beside a slave and enjoying this, this communion meal. That is something I can't even dream of because there's this vast economic division. There's this vast social division. There's this vast racial division. No, that's not possible. But what they missed is that with God all things are possible. You know, someone uh, who knew this delivered a speech 50 years ago this past week. Reverend Martin Luther King, Jr., said he had a dream. I want to read to you some phrases from that speech this morning. He said, I have a dream that one day this nation will rise up and live out the true meaning of its creed. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal. I have a dream that one day on the red hills of Georgia, the sons of former slaves and the sons of former slave owners will be able to sit down together at a table of brotherhood. I have a dream that my four little children will one day live in a nation where they will not be judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. I have a dream today. I have a dream that one day every valley shall be exalted and every hill and mountain shall be made low and the rough places will be made a plain and the crooked places will be made straight and the glory of the Lord will be revealed and all flesh will see it together. How could he dream that way? How could he dream that way? Let me tell you, that dream, it didn't come from the halls of Congress. It didn't. It didn't come from the media and the news. It didn't come from them. It didn't come from Hollywood or from the entertainment industry. No. That dream came from the pulpit of a church. A church like this. You see, the reverend in front of Martin Luther King Jr. was not a vanity plate. It was his identity. And he could dream that this would be so because he had met Christ personally and he had witnessed the transforming power himself. And you can only dream of such transformation if you personally know the one who transforms. Do you understand that? And when you experience that transforming nature of Christ and that power of Christ, then you can begin to imagine things that couldn't otherwise be. There is no greater key to emotional and spiritual health than recognizing that God gives you the power To change. You don't have to be the same person today as you were yesterday. And you don't have to be the same person tomorrow as you are today. You have great potential. The potential to be different. The potential to make a difference. The potential to actually move heaven and earth. We live in a world where we're taught to make excuses. It's like excuses are everywhere. It's like you're walking through Walmart, and they're on the ends of the, the, the stands. You can just get an excuse anywhere. We make those excuses because we don't want to believe that God gives us transforming power that we can be different people. So we believe lies. Lies like this. I can never stop doing this because I'm an addict. And we take that word addict, and we put it on here like a name tag. Right on our chest, we say addict. That's a lie. I can't be a good mother because I'm just too impatient. If I, was as, as if I was as patient as Mindy, but I can't do that, so I am impatient, bad mother. And we put that on here, and we own it as our identity. And that's a lie. That's a lie. I can't stop blowing up at people. I try to, but I just can't do it. It's because my doctor told me I'm bipolar. You may be bipolar, but it is a lie that you cannot change. You Put that on. Bipolar... Explosive, Can't do it. I can't read. I can never read. The Bible is not valuable to me because I'm dyslexic. And you put that on and say, I can never do that. I'm dyslexic, okay? Your pastor is dyslexic. It's a lie that you can't. I will never be able to lead my family in prayer, non-leader, or in anything else um, because I have no discipline. No discipline. That's my name tag. That's a lie that you can never change. It's a lie. And you need to have a dream that you can change. These labels that we accept for ourselves, they may or may not be descriptive of us presently, but if you're in Christ, they do not have to be prescriptive of you, telling you what you will be. Negative labels may describe us in the present time, but when we look to Christ, they do not prescribe who we will be. And you remember that you were made by a creator who has something in mind for you, that there are certain things in this world that God has for you to do, and that you are just the right person to do them. When you remember your personhood, you can uh, you can change. You need to see your own personhood. And second, you need to see the personhood of others. Throughout history, and even today, even today, um, we often treat people like objects. We treat people like just stuff we can use. And probably the most obvious place that you see that is in pornography. That those people are being used by those who would be viewing. So we treat them as as objects. And it's really easy to write it off and say, yep, people do that. I don't do that, but people do that. But all of us struggle with treating people like objects. Scazzaro illustrates this through some personal examples. He says this, I do not recognize the personhood of people. That is, I'm treating a person like an object... When I walk in and dump my work on my secretary without even saying hello. Or when I move people around on an organizational chart at a meeting as if they were objects or subhuman. Or when I talk about people in authority, whether it's a church leader or president of a country, as though he is subhuman. When I treat my wife and my children as if they're not in charge of their freedom and dreams and autonomy, and I expect them to be the picture that I have in my head. Or when I am threatened by someone who disagrees with me, politically. Or when I listen to my neighbors' problems and help them with their chores around the house, hoping they'll attend that Christmas outreach at church, and when they don't, I just move on to someone else, treating them like objects. Man, when I read that list, I realized I'm so guilty of the same thing. Sometimes I don't see the personhood of others And biblically, we need to see others as people who have great value before God. I think that if Schizero was writing to the people in Corinth, he might say something like this. When you treat people like they're less than you because they like Apollos more than Paul, you're treating them as objects, inhuman. And when you trying to be first in line with complete disregard for the people behind you, you are treating them as objects. And when you humiliate them because you have something that's nicer and prettier and shinier and more valuable than them, you're treating them as as though they're inhuman. See, the Apostle Paul, it was troubling to him that the haves in Corinth were treating the have-nots as being inhuman. And all of us do this when we fail to see people as having value to God. God values people. He sees what they can be. And we need to see others as having great potential before God. That's the key word, potential. You know, through the years, I have read a lot about the history of the computer revolution. I've been reading about that since back in the 70s, really. I've watched the movies. I've streamed the biographies off of Netflix. I bored my wife to death with that sort of thing. I read the books Before, it was fashionable to read the books. I read a book on the early days of computing that was written in PICA, 10 print, you know? So you know how old that is, and it must have been published by somebody in his basement, right? Something that stands out to me when I think of those years was how one person can be holding the future in the palm of his hand without knowing it. Such was the case in Xerox. When a young man named Stephen Jobs got to go to Palo Alto, to their to their research and development facility, Xerox was the leading tech company. The leading tech company. He went in and as he's touring it, he sees this thing called a mouse. And that's a picture of the first mouse. It wasn't developed by Apple. It was developed by some guys, some engineers at Xerox. Jobs said, and Malcolm Gladwell tells this story on NPR so well. Jobs said, "What, what is that? And the guy said, "Ah, eh, it's just something we've been playing around with. It's a mouse. And and when you move it, there's a ball on the bottom. When you move it, it, it moves the, the pointer on the screen. And if I click with this button, it opens up that thing into, I think, we call that a window there. No one was using that. It hadn't been developed by anybody. Gladwell says that Jobs is dancing around the room there in Xerox trying to contain himself. And when he leaves and goes back to Apple, one of his guys comes up and says, hey, I need to talk to you, it's a lead engineer. And Jobs interrupts him and says, you have nothing to say to me. I have something to say to you. Build a mouse. Here's what it looks like, here's what it does. This is where we need to go as a company. And that night, that guy went to Walgreens or his local drugstore, bought all the antiperspirant brands he could, took the ball, the roller ball out of that, put it into a box and developed the first mouse. It was like $300 for the Xerox one. He worked to make it a lot cheaper and Apple whew, took off. And Windows, wow, took off. Here's what's amazing to me. One person can be holding the future in the palm of their hand, toss it in a bottom drawer of a cabinet and say, I really don't see any potential there. And another person can be holding the future in the palm of his hand, and he can change the way that we interface with the world. And that's not an overstatement. Jobs saw the potential, and the rest is history. And it's a matter of seeing potential. You and I are taught, and rightly so, that apart from Jesus Christ, we are nothing. But never end the sentence there. Never end the sentence with, we are nothing. Because through Jesus, we have great potential, and in Christ, we are we are nothing less than amazing, phenomenal. We are what God said after several days of creation, finally, when he makes us, and by the way, the work of Christ on the cross returns us to that pure and holy state. When he makes us, he says, this is not just good, this is very good. And he's talking about humanity. He's talking about you and me. And from what we are shown in the Bible, we are the best thing that God has ever done. Do you hear that? We are the best thing that God has ever done. We use some really bad phrases sometimes. My dad used to comment, and I know he just did this to make me be a harder worker on a farm. But he used to comment about other people's kids. And he would say, That that Billy, you know, he is useless. And that was one of Dad's terms. That kid's useless. That kid is useless. Others say, that guy is worse than useless. My phrase has been this. That person's a waste of flesh. Never. Never. That person is someone who God created. That person is someone who Jesus died for. And when God sees that person, he sees what he made, and he sees what can be through Jesus Christ. And he wants us to see others in that same way. He wants us to see the personhood of others, and if you're going to be emotionally and spiritually healthy, you're going to have to see others as having great value before God and having great potential in Christ, and that will help you to love. That'll help you not to be a crabbit, <laughs> it'll help you not to be a Grinch, it will help you not to be the guy whose wife is starting a fund for your park bench, you know. If you're going to be emotionally and spiritually healthy, you're going to have to come to this communion table as a human recognizing Christ has created you uniquely and he has redeemed you through his son so that you yourself have great potential to change. And listen to me, hear this. You're going to have to stop believing lies. You're going to have to get some dreams that God can change you and enable you and empower you. And you're going to have to see the personhood of those who are with you and around you. You're going to have to remember they have great value before God and great potential as well. And you're going to have to love. You're going to have to choose to love them. So as we celebrate the Lord's Supper, let's attend to our hearts, choosing to love the persons who are around us. I'm going to ask the musicians to come. I'm going to speak to you a little bit about the Lord's Supper. And uh, then I'll ask the elders to come, or the communion stewards. You know, on the night he was betrayed, Jesus took bread. And he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this as often as you take it in remembrance of me. And afterward, he took the cup. And what Jesus was doing there is he was establishing a table where we all can come before God personally. You know, our Presbyterian brothers have this rule that the communion table has to be out where it can be accessed equally from the whole perimeter. They would probably not have it up on the platform as we have, but they'd have it down here, and they would have all their elders gather around it, not before it, because they want to point out that equality that belongs to us in Christ. I love that picture. I love that picture. On the night he was betrayed, he took bread, and when he broke it, he gave thanks and said, this is my body, which is for you. And afterward, he took the cup and said, this cup is a new covenant in my blood. It's the payment for your sins. In some churches, you have to be a member to take communion. That's not the case here. I would say that what you need to do is to have come to a place in your life where you have recognized that although you have great potential, there's something wrong with your heart. You have sinned and offended a holy God because of his great love for you and the way he viewed you. He sent his son Jesus to die for your sins. And by turning away from your sin and placing your trust in Christ, you can be forgiven and you can be made brand new. If you have done that, then you're welcome to participate with us. If you haven't done it, why not do it today? Why not just turn to Christ in the quietness of your own heart and say, I know I've sinned. I understand Jesus died for my sins. Please forgive me. Make me new from the inside out. I'm going to ask the communion stewards if they'll come, and then I'm going to pray, and then we'll take communion. Gentlemen, would you please come?